This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. So, uh, before we dive in, I'm curious to hear how many folks here are horror fans and how many of you are just horror curious. All right, that's, that's very good. I'm happy to see there's so many socialists willing to out themselves as enjoying the most depraved and morally abhorrent aspects of pop culture. Um, you don't need to worry. Uh, for as long as the talk is going, this is going to be a safe space for all left horror fans. Anyone that has ever been gripped by this ir- irrepressible giddiness that you get when evaluating if a kill sequence is any good or not, and then come to your senses and realize you're covered in all sorts of political guilt as a result of your giddiness. Uh, I want to say to you at the outset that you are seen. I also suffer from this affliction and feel that inner turmoil that comes from delighting in mounting body counts and secretly rooting for every mass murderer and every rubber mask that's out there from the 1980s. Uh, We all know that the carnivalistic revelry in Guts and Gore borders on the objectionable, but we can't look away. It's a thing that you just keep coming back to, and for people who have the bug, find it hard to satisfy. So what do we do with this seeming contradiction? Uh, Whether we're in a safe space or not, should we be asking ourselves if our infatuation makes us bad socialists? Should we enroll in a 12-step re-education program and overcome our petty bourgeois tastes? Uh, Should we admit that true class consciousness will come only when we recognize that land and freedom was the high watermark of cultural left values and get rid of our lowbrow deviations? If you've pondered this question, I'm here to tell you at the outset that the answer should be a blood-curdling no. Um, In fact, I'll do one better and say that the guilty part of guilty pleasures has a lot more to do with horror's more reactionary tendencies than it does with a rigorous materialist counting of the genre's nature, whether that's a political nature or nature in general. And to all the non-fans who are here, presumably to silently judge the rest of us, uh, my hope is that by the time I'm done up here, you'll maybe believe that there's something here that's worth understanding at the very least, and one further, that we can even defend aspects of the, of the genre, politically. And I can see some of you rolling your eyes, which is fine, but I know you've watched every episode of The West Wing several times, so cast stones with caution. But what exactly are we talking about here? What is horror in the first place? In a lot of ways, it's easier to get an answer to this by carefully slicing away what horror isn't, rather than offering a straightforward definition. Horror is not reducible to just so much blood-splattered celluloid. It's not merely shambling figures in bad makeup, nor is it simply spine-tingling yarns that liquefy the bowels. 
It's not merely a string of rote cinematic tricks that scare despite their predictability, and it's not mainly a clever vehicle for manifesting societal terrors in metaphoric form. Though all of those things are part of the stuff that make up its ever-shifting, utterly impossible anatomy. It isn't ghosts, nor is it claws. It's not tentacles dripping viscous fluid, and it's not even men with knives. It's not monsters in the broadest sense. Horror is not defined by the pablum churned out by the studios looking for a quick buck off of low-budget films, though it's not, not defined by Hollywood either. Its critics and censors, be they moralists or cultural elitists, can no more claim to lay out its parameters than its boosters and practitioners can. Its slipperiness and plasticity is part of its appeal, and it's a major source of its enduring power. It's also not just something that's frightening, or creepy, or dread-inducing, or filled with gore, or even the sum total of all these things. We can definitely say that self-conscious self entities, entries, there's lots of entities in horror too, um, we can say that self-conscious approaches to the genre usually intend to provoke all of those feelings, but it's often the unintentionally horrific that has the most lasting impression and sits with you regardless of whether it intended to do that or not. So it's almost like you can either define the content of horror or its meaning, but never both simultaneously because they mutually annihilate one another. So ultimately, if we're forced to actually give an answer to this question, or if I am, maybe you all have different answers to the question, I'd say that horror is basically any medium that plumbs the depths of our nightmares and tries to give them material form. And since there's no such thing as a politically neutral nightmare, herein lies one of the reasons all radicals should be interested in the genre, whether you are supporters of it or enthusiasts for it or not. Every fever dream pressed onto the page or screen can teach us much about the waking world from which it springs. Horror's ability to provoke dread and terror requires it to dredge the corpse-filled lakes of a society's deepest fears. The throbbing heart buried beneath the floorboard of every terrifying tale, regardless of said tale's political inflection, can offer us invaluable political insights. Even when those insights are reprehensible, politically backward, or thoroughly contradictory. This is why a famous socialist once wrote that the history of all hitherto existing societies is the history of monsters. <laughs> From their literary birth down to the present, monsters of all sorts have always screamed for audiences to recognize that they mean something. And we excitedly rush to answer these howling pleas. If you listen to the chatter outside of any theater where the latest big budget creature feature has been shown, you'll just get a sense of this, you know. What does that rampaging chimp represent? No, Godzilla is not about nuclear war. It's clearly about climate catastrophe. What the hell was the deal with the leaf-faced altar in that church? Among other such exchanges that happen regularly when you are trying to digest what it is that you just watched. Incidentally, this elusive polysemony is an invitation to interpretation and one of the reasons I think the left should feel confident in defending horror as a whole. The genre is radically democratic in ways that spill, sorry, it's radically democratic in the way it spills its hot and stinking guts all over the screen and asks us to sift through the entrails. Everyone can see pieces of themselves in horror whenever they encounter it. If you're scared by a horror movie, 
you inevitably want to figure out why and have conversations about it. And through that process, audiences become essential to decoding and reinterpreting and explaining what every new or old or rebooted monster means. It should be said that we want to travel with caution here, because every 9-11-shaped wound and every phallus-tongued xenomorph begs to be violently desiccated by our decoding, but we also need to bear in mind that total domestication is definitionally impossible when dealing with the ineffable. A creature's toothy maw might be a metaphor for the perils of sex, but we forget that it's also filled with razor-sharp fangs at our own peril. We need to respect our query in addition to being enthralled by it. In other words, if it doesn't terrify, was it even a nightmare in the first place? So bearing that qualification in mind, we can say that for the past 60 years or so, our monsters, at least in their kind of mainstream iterations, have come dripping from head to toe in the viscera of moralistic self-righteousness. The ubiquitous message hiding out in every dark alley was always and everywhere a simplistic purity parable or some other such morality tale. It's in fact become such a truism that it starts to appear as a meta-critique within horror itself that I'm sure most people are familiar with. Uh, most famously in Wes Craven's Scream, you get Jamie Kennedy as Randy explaining the rules of surviving a horror movie to a group of partygoers and by extension, the audience that's watching it. And Randy's list consists of three essential tactics for self-preservation. Don't have sex, never drink or do drugs, and avoid saying, I'll be back. And two out of those three points are sacrosanct and simplistic convictions that have animated every vengeful bloodletting since the days of the Salem witch trials. Uh, but they were all given a new life by the Reagan era culture wars that were unleashed in the 1980s. Um, during the 80s, there was a political backlash against the movements of the 1960s, and they congealed into this unthinking conservative denunciation of any transgression away from American values, especially within the culture industry. The right pulled out all the stops to conjure a sense of nostalgia for a suburban utopia that was built on strong, patriotic families. Families that never really existed in that form to begin with, but nevertheless were used as bludgeons against their critics. And these families were usually counterposed to these sort of idealized, or these idealized archetypical families were counterposed to tropes meant to be shown as degraded or unacceptably broken or variously wrong in different aspects. You had the chaste daughter versus the sex-mad feminist, the red-blooded, square-jawed football player versus the long-haired hippies who spit on veterans church-going, hard-working patriarchs versus lazy, godless communists hiding in the bushes and so on and so forth uh, ad nauseum. Um, and as culture wars, warriors stoked these fires in the broader context of politics, they didn't take very long to spread into mainstream horror movies. Hollywood seized on the moment in the 1980s to carve out an extremely lucrative mold that all of their spooky releases started to follow. Um, basically, they did this by emphasizing the most conservative readings of Halloween, Friday the 13th, and Nightmare on Elm Street, all of which were these runaway successes that just broke the box office just at the same time that Reagan was getting thumped in the, or Reagan was thumping Carter in the polls. It would have been a different world if Carter had done that, I guess. Um, the template that they forged is still the one that they used to mint slasher movies in particular up to this day, and there's a rudimentary formula you can kind of distill from it. 
You take teenagers in peril, plus otherworldly and or preternatural, but human-shaped monsters, add in a random sampling of five to 10 established tropes, and what you have as a result is a commercially viable and occasionally delightful scarefest. Every slumber party massacre and sorority house massacre and graduation day massacre jettisoned any pretense of a plot in exchange for hectoring sex is bad slogans, despite the fact that most of them were dime a dozen clones that barely disguised their, 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 their main intent, which was to cut up women, preferably, sca preferably scantily clad women, on the screen. So you have these moral panic messages, despite the fact there's a revelry in exactly the kind of violence that they're supposedly denouncing, an interesting contradiction. And the basic takeaway was always and everywhere that having extramarital sex pretty much guaranteed that you were going to be murdered. And the Reaganite culture warriors would have you believe that was true, whether it was in a horror movie or on the streets. And many of the worst examples of this trend managed to throw in a bunch of other moral majority talking points in addition to the anti-sex message, like the importance of, of obeying one's parents, the dangers of hippies, or how fun should be avoided like the devil. All very uh, popular slogans that were integrated into a lot of the 80s horror movies. Um, and through the 90s and the 2000s, the kind of specific obsessions of Hollywood mutated, especially following 9-11 and the Iraq War, where you traded this kind of simpering self-righteousness for a braying nationalistic sadism as embodied in torture porn. Um, but the conservatism of horror's mainstream persisted until relatively recently. Things changed pretty decisively, I think, following James Wan's The Conjuring in 2013, which was fantastic in its own right, but even more so in that it just completely altered what the mainstream of horror was looking at. Um, and it opened the way for what I think is widely considered the new golden era of horror, which is the top, which is basically the topic of what we're going to discuss here. Um, I think there hasn't really been a better time for a left horror enthusiast to be out there in the world digesting all the stuff that's coming at us, both from big studios and on the fringes. We're getting a lot of what I think are the most interesting and effective horror that's been released in decades. And since many of us here are socialists who like our culture served up with plenty of puncture wounds and gnashing teeth, we can feel more at home in the current moment where the politics are markedly anti-moralist than we could in previous eras. Uh, the best of that recent crop I'm thinking of deal in honest attempts to grapple with trauma in all sorts of forms and usually intentionally avoid giving any kind of easy out that you get in previous entries in the genre. As I alluded to above, uh, because of its hegemony within horror for more than a generation, moralism, the unthinking, spiteful, one-dimensional animus towards any departure from prevailing social norms, or really contempt for any revelry of any kind, uh, has come to be considered part of the very grammar of the genre by a lot of its critics. It's pretty easy to speak in generalizations about the racism of horror movies or their glorification of sexual violence for example, um, but unfortunately these easy critiques usually slip into exactly the same moralistic hectoring that you get from these movies that existed previously. And it's not to say there aren't lots of racist tropes or ample misogyny to be found in horror. Uh, there's definitely plenty to go around. 
But one of the things that makes the current moment most interesting, in my opinion, is that they're going beyond just an attempt to glom on to the turn in the culture more generally towards diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the other various things that by and large are fairly positive being imbibed by the culture industry as a whole. But they go beyond this and dig their nails into the more pernicious and extremely reactionary puritanical underpinnings of the ruling order. Um, and frankly, I think that some of the films are doing this more effectively than most of the left. Moralism is, I think, unfortunately, a thing that we slip into way too easily, and I think we ought to avoid and take a lesson from um, some of what's out there. And to be more specific, I'm thinking about The Babadook, It Follows, The Witch, Hereditary, Jordan Peele's films, and a bunch of other thinking person's horror, which we've been seeing happening more, or getting much more of in the last five years, and all of which are interested in family, trauma, and explicitly political themes. Though I think it's important to resist the Hollywood amnesia machine's effort to feed us a fleshy slurry of overstatement combined with marketing copy, which is their solution to telling us why they celebrate the way these movies are uniquely left-wing. Um, the anti-moralism that one finds in contemporary genre films has plenty of antecedents in earlier outings, and I think that's important. In fact, it should be said that the kernel present in the key pillars of the very conservative turn I was talking about from the 1980s happened to be fairly non-moralistic in themselves. Um, some of the masters of the genre, most notably George Romero, Wes Craven, and John Carpenter, were uninterested in these kind of puckered morality plays, despite the fact that their films get turned into the building blocks for what follows. Um, in fact, Wes Craven is on record as trying to use horror as a form of artistic protest against the war on Vietnam, and Sean Cunningham, who was a producer on Last House on the Left and director of Friday the 13th, also talked about the same kinds of sentiments, seeing everything unfolding on the screen and realizing that if the news media is going to show this and there's no response, maybe we need to amp, amp it up and have that as a way of showing everything that's wrong with American culture at the time. All of those directors were doing what Jordan Peele has essentially been credited with inventing, which is making socially aware horror, which isn't necessarily to dig at Peele, but it is to say this has existed for a while, and it's worth thinking about why those aspects aren't the ones that get emphasized. But the stated views of these directors, I think, is only half of what's interesting here. Um, a lot of times artists have the least access to what's actually going on in their work and, you know, death of the author and all that. But the films that they're most famous for are deeply subversive to their core and really directly challenge that purity seeking of their contemporaries. I think the first example of this is Friday the 13th, where anti-moralism floats just beneath the surface if you look closely enough. Um, all of its sequels and spin-offs and everything are major contributors in establishing the basic parameters of the summer camp slasher tropes, you know, including sex equals bad as their prevailing wisdom. But in the original, there is no Jason Voorhees, the reanimated slash invulnerable hulking monster. There's just a bereaved mother in a hockey mask acting out her misplaced revenge fantasies on innocent camp counselors. At the end of the film, after the identity of the killer, which has been terrorizing everybody, is revealed, uh, we get this grief-stricken mother 
who is in the midst of an absolutely devastating breakdown, her response is an irrational one, naturally, uh, and the surviving teens have a difficult time processing the fact that they're dealing with somebody who's deeply disturbed, she was trying to cut them up, de-escalation and uh, harm reduction were really in the fronts of their minds as they're being chased around the <laughs> summer camp. Um, but either way, the final sequence shifts the film from a tale about how premarital sex is enough to wake a bloodthirsty boogeyman from the grave to one that's really about the dangers of revenge and hasty judgments made in the heats of passion. And then there's Nightmare on Elm Street, which on the face of it seems to genuflect in revelry at the altar of moral purity with campy violence and all sorts of things that would suggest it's just another one of these sorts of purity tales. In it, there are teenagers who have sex before marriage who are murdered by a knife-glove-wielding maniac who haunts their dreams. But the straightforward, tropey interpretation is severely complicated by one very small, easily missed sequence in which Nancy, the protagonist's mother, goes on a rant about Freddy Krueger's background. She talks about how he was a dirty child molester who was abusing children all across the neighborhood and laments that he got off because of a hotshot lawyer and was able to plead his case to a fat cat judge. These are all the quotes. And it's kind of remarkable the sheer number of reactionary, tough on crime, moral dog whistles strung together in one <laughs> bit of dialogue. Um, but the ringer in this entire sequence comes when Nancy's mother calms for a moment and matter-of-factly declares that the only logical next step when faced with this dirty child molester was to round up all of her neighbors and avert this abortion of justice by banding together and burning that monster alive. So what we have here is a mob of parents, presumably deeply bereaved and maybe having faced real serious issues in their neighborhood, but we don't know. She's the only narrator of what's happening. Um, anyway, they band together, go down the block, find their neighbor, who they're convinced is responsible for these atrocities, and they string him up by his haunches and roast him on a spit. Then he comes back as a vengeful spirit and starts murdering their children. Uh, it's hardly a straightforward morality tale about, you know, just being against sex and all of this. At the very least, her stroll down memory lane provides a pretty serious complication to the narrative of Freddy Krueger as this cosmically evil entity. In fact, it's not much of a leap to read the scene as saying that these monsters that lurk beneath every suburban bed probably take refuge there for a reason, take refuge in the suburbs for a reason. Freddy may well have been an innocent, and the psychotic specter he became in death couldn't exist without the hysterical rage of the community he haunts. These monsters don't come from without, they're generated from within by the gated communities that they terrorize one possible reading of what's going on there. And even if that reading isn't particularly convincing to folks out there, and my attempt to defend these classics might be dismissed as just so much post-facto uh, political justification for my own unconscionable tastes, uh, which it might be, there is no denying that contemporary horror is tackling all of this contradictory ground very directly. Jennifer Kent's Babadook and Ari Aster's Hereditary are exemplary at offering an anti-moralist approach, specifically in the way both movies eschew neat answers to crippling, impossible thematic questions. And frankly, I think they're scarier and more politically interesting as a result of the ambiguity that they sit with. 
Um, the Babadook is a movie about a single mother who hates her kid. She hates him because he's destroying her life. He's impossible. He's everything that the eponymous monster becomes in symbolic form. And then midway through the movie, we get this flip in their dynamic where she becomes the monster in the same way that he had been. And we get a view of all the ways that her son is terrified of his mother, in part because he picks up on the fact that she hates him. The core of the movie is a struggle with this mutually inflicted familial trauma, and it offers a recognition that actually it's maybe okay for her to have these feelings about her kid, but what makes them absolutely monstrous and impossible to deal with is, and where her general misery comes from, is that it's impossible for her to even admit that she doesn't want to be a mother. It's not this beautiful struggle whose every tribulation is paid for by a magical bond with her child. It's awful, soul-crushing. She doesn't have any exit, and she sees no way around confronting what she doesn't want to confront, since he's still her responsibility. And even as she hates him, she also loves him as well. So like, this is a nest of vipers that she can't get out of. Um, and that nest of vipers is the well from which every ounce of anxiety and dread in the movie is drawn, and it pulls from those depths and uses them to build this beautifully terrifying monster movie. Hereditary does a similar kind of thing in that it confronts a situation where there's literally no way to deal with the scale of grief suffocating a family. All the most effective nail-biting sequences throughout the movie are not when creepy naked cultists appear or when Tony Collette skitters across the ceiling. Although if it doesn't make you jump out of the seat when this happens, you probably should check your pulse. But those aren't the things that really just make you feel clenched and like the most awful bits of it. It's when the family's sitting around the dinner table and they simply can't talk about all the feelings of blame, guilt, and sorrow they share as a result of the older son having killed his younger sister, accidentally, but nonetheless. It just is not a thing that any family is equipped to deal with, and all of them experience it so differently that they're paralyzed by the gravity of it. I mean, those sequences are just incredible. The tension will make the skin crawl off of your bones, and then Tony Collette is also floating upside down, beating her head against the attic door in time with this dull tone that's present from the start of the film, and it's just tension, tension, tension. It's like a movie that offers scares I'm going to remember until my dying day, and it does it really because of how it thoughtfully transforms this universal, if utterly devastating, concern into a source of this just awful power. In both cases, the refusal to say that we have a quick answer to these things that literally everybody faces in one form or another, and yet we can't or won't talk about, is politically interesting to me, because, and it also yields scarier filmmaking, than a moralistic approach in which the answer to the dilemmas that it's dealing with always and everywhere are smug and obvious. Our moment has unmistakably veered to the left in terms of its thematic content. From antlers and the crushing engagement with addiction and working class poverty, to men's didactic but effective confrontation with the patriarchy, to Titan's fresh and deeply disturbing exploration of sexuality through body horror, on the whole we're seeing the political pendulum in the pit of popular culture swing back in our direction, which is a thing to be celebrated and glad of.
but let's not slip into a comfortable complacency. What do we do in those cases when truly right-wing horror emerges? Or even more vexing, what do we do when faced with extremely effective and but viciously reactionary horror? I tend to think of this in shorthand as the Lovecraft paradox. Old HP remains unrivaled as the master of modern horror, not despite his backward ideas, but in large part because of them. Here's a guy who has such ready access to the fears that penetrate right to the core of society and what makes it tick that he literally made a monster out of a strange color and the story in which it appears is so chilling, so haunting, I guarantee that I'll make you lose sleep. His mythos is chock full of colonial prejudices mutated into cosmic horrors and some of his most iconic monsters are a little more than anti-miscegenation tropes dressed up with gills. There are two common responses that I see a lot to this set of contradictions. One of them is to try and paper over festering pustules extruding from the proverbial tentacles. But this approach is never very convincing. Um, fluid from the weeping sores always manages to leak through. Try as one might, there's just no overlooking or excusing the racism of a story like The Shadow Over Innsmouth. Lovecraft's bread and butter is wrongness. His medium is the bad uncanny. And the hyper-rational, high-minded skepticism of his narrator can't but descend into utter madness and despair when faced with the impossible realization that he is in fact the scion of an eternal creature of the deep. This is what makes the story tick. It's incredibly effective. You can't take that out without losing the horror. An equally unsatisfying response is to deny the efficacy of the story like this on the basis of its political perspective. To claim that the Deep Ones and the cult that worships them in Lovecraft's sleepy New England town aren't frightening because their ghastliness is built in large part out of his own racist paranoia is to engage in para, you know, an elaborate self-deception. It's a terrifying story. <clears throat> Circling back to genre films, Ari Aster's latest movie, Midsummer, is something of a contemporary example of the same paradox, in my opinion. It strums on dread, wrongness, and the isolation of grace, grief so effectively that by the movie's conclusion, it's hard not to completely agree with Florence Pugh's acceptance of the soothing balm of belonging, even if that belonging comes at the cost of dressing her boyfriend up in a bear skin and lighting him on fire during a pagan ritual. After all the brutality, all the loss that she faces, by becoming a willing participant in a heinous act of violence, she ultimately finds relief from the crushing individualistic pressures of our society. And she does so by joining a collective that truly believes in one another and protects its own, very much in sharp, sharp contrast to the friends who she brings along on her trip. This isn't just conservative, this isn't just a conservative resolu resolution, it's a full-throated fascist conclusion. From the hyper-violence to the mystical rituals, even down to the contempt for the rot of liberal society, this is a movie that ticks all the boxes on the list of is this fascism scorecard. Um, that our protagonist ultimately escapes from modern society and finds a simpler place where she can leave her depression behind makes Midsummer all the more unsettling because of the nugget of deeply disturbing truth it offers. And after sitting with it for some time, I think it just wouldn't be nearly as frightening nor nearly as interesting if this was just 
a more conventional folk horror in which the terror that is found in the movie were rooted in an encounter with cultists or fanatics that are completely out of step with modern society and shown to be dangerous because of it. That element exists inside of Midsummer, but that's actually not primarily what's going on. It's a whole different thing about her leaving and joining a collective that dismembers outsiders. There's simply no way to politically defend this movie. And yet, like Lovecraft, if we're being honest with ourselves, there's no way to deny its power. So, where does that leave us? We could just cast Lovecraft from the firmament and decide to denounce things like Midsummer that are undeniably right-wing. But socialists don't exactly have a great record of drawing firm lines around what constitutes acceptable and unacceptable pieces of art. So I think that's a thing that we should try to avoid, if at all possible. And frankly, it is just a, doing that would be a dark reflection of the same moralistic absolutism that I've been criticizing. Moralism is ultimately the domain, the natural domain of the right wing, which hunts, sex panics, etc. And it does the left very few favors to tread on that ground, tempting and easy as it may be to do so. I think that what we need is rigor, honesty, and a willingness to be critical of the things that we love. There is an unfortunate tendency among much of the left to sink into sloppy justifications for our aesthetic tastes, some of which I've done above. I love these movies and therefore I must defend them. We would be remiss if we were to grasp after political defenses of the things we like based on the one marginal reading of one throwaway conversation that Nancy has with her mother in Nightmare on Elm Street, for example. We need to do better than that. And I think that the closer we get to bits of culture that are proximal to the politics we would defend, the more critical of them we should be. Because we need to have higher standards. We should say, if you're attempting to do politics with your movies or books or whatever else, we demand that you take us just as seriously as you are asking us to take you. Which leads me to the topic of probably my spiciest take, uh, Jordan Peele. Any Jordan Peele fans here? All right, I'm going to get denounced. <laughs> I think there's a lot of what Jordan Peele is doing that's absolutely amazing, and it's really unique given where horror is and where it has been. Both Get Out and Us are channeling the fears and anxieties of middle-class black folks in a way that I don't think horror directors have ever done. This is really the most pronounced in Us, um, and in a lot of ways it's a simple home invasion movie, a genre that's always been about suburbia, white picket fences, the period of the virginal daughter, all that stuff that needs to be defended from others who are beating down the door of the patriarch. Deeply, deeply conservative tropes. And the most absurd part about all home invasion movies is why the fuck don't they just leave? You've got crazed invaders coming for your stuff. Who cares? Get out! Flee! And yet, all of them get killed because they won't leave. In Us, the exact opposite happens, right? The family's starting point just isn't the same as the average middle-class white family, and so the anxiety at the movie's heart is really different. It's much more in line with a sort of black middle-class psyche as opposed to a white middle-class psyche concerned with its stuff. The locus of what makes Jordan Peele's movies so much different from anything else that's ever come out in Hollywood, in my opinion, is what makes him most worthy of the praise that he's received. But it's also the reason why I think a lot of the critics get wrong exactly what's going on, and there's so much hot air around it, to be honest. 
Though, to get another sidebar in here, I don't think he's actually all that unique in using horror to deal with racism or to think about the way American society is particularly brutal towards marginalized peoples. George Romero did this throughout his career. Clyde Barker's Candyman is a fantastic meditation on gentrification and the legacies of slavery. But most exemplary is Wes Craven's People Under the Stairs, which was released in 1991. And it does almost exactly the same things that Jordan Peele is attempting in Us. It stars black protagonists. It's set in a black neighborhood. It's about gentrification, racism, the dispossession of the community, and the gimp suit wearing weirdos who are responsible for it all. It's also an explicitly anti-war film. Um, it's really worth watching for folks that haven't seen it. It's not Wes Craven's most well-known, but it's just really extraordinary. So that's all to say that anti-racist horror has certainly been done, but Jordan Peele is very much doing it in a way that's different because of where he centers the kind of perspective. A lot of the critical acclaim he's received has been off-mark in that far too much of it tries to say that he's the singular figure in the genre. So that's a lot of what I'm taking issue with. Those sorts of takes about how unique he is really make me prickle because we have so many others who are worth paying attention to, and Peel should be seen as standing among them, not above them. And very much to his credit, this is his understanding of where he stands as well. The critical apparatus is a lot of the problem, but nonetheless, this is where we are. Even granting all of that, I think that Us doesn't live up to the hype if what you're looking for is a horror movie that's effective at scaring the bejesus out of you. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that I don't think Us is that much of a horror movie at all. The movie falls to absolute pieces in the third act when he tries to explain where his monsters come from and what they're doing. He just can't leave well enough alone on this origin story because I think the point is to make a political case, which is an important political case, but the point ultimately undermines the power of his monsters in my opinion. As he pulls the rubber mask off, he makes us realize it was a mask in the first place. His monsters exist first and foremost to offer us lessons, which pulls them out of our nightmares and makes them into arguments about the waking world, leaving them domesticated and without those fangs and claws. For my tastes, Jordan Peele also gets in his way because he's repeatedly undermining himself by not knowing whether he's making a horror comedy or a straight horror movie. But that's probably a subjective take. People can denounce me now. Through all of this, I think that we should keep in mind that culture is not where we do politics. And this is one of the fundamental things I think we need to take away. The stakes are relatively low. It's not a world-ending conflict, but it is a battlefield. And certainly, it's one that our political enemies care a great deal about. So we can't just concede the cultural landscape as one social should not be bothered to care about, nor should we make it the main place where we're doing our work. Horror, in particular, provides a way of connecting to society's dirty underbelly, and this is felt by everyone. The fears that are driving folks, what, what horror is popular in a given moment, tells us something about what's motivating people at the most base level. Certainly not directly, and certainly not in a way that you can just, in a one-to-one, -one, draw political conclusions from. It takes decoding, but we should take that seriously. And it says something about what's going on in society at a given moment, which is among the reasons why I think everybody who's political can learn something from horror movies. We should take it seriously, like I said. And taking it seriously means directly confronting every H.P. Lovecraft honestly 
and with a willingness to hold contradictory ideas in mind. We should never set our politics aside when thinking about the things we love, nor should we allow our perfectly legitimate affinities to cloud our political judgments. Midsummer is a fascist movie. It is one of the most haunting movies in recent memory. And that I love it does not necessarily make me a bad socialist. There may be other reasons why you call me a bad socialist, but that should not be the main one. So, to close, as every good political meeting should, with a slogan, down with moralism, up with monsters. Thanks. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.